Hello, everybody. Welcome to Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasperi. This is Frank Pelican. Tonight, you're listening to episode 94, which is going to focus on the top five films of 1990. And Frank, you were just telling me before we went on live here that um, you said this was a pretty difficult list, right? Yeah, so even if you take out movies that we've talked about before um, that I consider to be pretty close to either the top of what this list would have been or, you know, at least personal favorites, um, you're taking out Miller's Crossing at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, you're taking out Jacob Flatter at that point. Metropolitan gets removed. Um, there's also some other stuff that I think probably widely considered to be among the better movies of that year. So things like Goodfellas. Um, Karen de Bergerac is that year. Awakenings mm-hmm. is that year. Um, Wild at Heart is that year, which uh, not one of my favorite Lynch movies, but still um, pretty pretty well-respected and important film, I think, in the 90s. I mean, then some personal favorites like uh, Exorcist 3, Edward Scissorhands, uh, Cry Baby, um, Henry and June, and Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Um, so just uh, just a pretty pretty stacked, stacked year. Like, uh, I think maybe indicative of that entire decade, really, like when you look at the great movies that, um, that came out of the 90s. And maybe a lot of that is just, you know, personal bias because they were, like, really our formative years in terms of being teenagers and becoming like adults and stuff. So, sure. you know, being able to go see more movies on your own because you were able to go out by yourself and see these movies in theaters. And, um, but I still think that the top five of this year is uh, incredibly strong. Um, there's nothing where sometimes we make lists and the number five is just, it's there for a reason. It's not there because it's like a great movie, but. I think every one of these movies is great, so. Yeah, 1990, I guess, is when, well, the movie theater that you worked at at one point, right? That was the year that was built, right? Like, the so the big movie theater, the big first big movie theater in this area was built, was 1990 in our? Yes. I think that's right. It might have opened in 91, though. I can't remember. I think it opened, but they were, yeah, I think they were building in 90 because, yeah, and... I want to say it opened at the beginning of 91, maybe, because they showed movies from 1990, if I remember correctly, for their first week or like the pre-opening or something like that. Yeah, they had um, three movies you could go and see um, before they officially opened. And it was stuff that had been out uh, typically in that past year or within like a year or two. Fisher um, yeah. King, I remember specifically right, uh, being shown there. So um, maybe, maybe it opened in 92 then. Yeah, I think it yeah, was. Because Fisher King is 91, I'm pretty sure, and I just looked up Necessary Roughness, and it's 91, because I remember that was one of them that was showing. But yeah, I mean, around this time, it's like we had the Christiana Mall, we had... Elkin Movies 4 was open. Elkin Movies 4 was open at that point, right? And then it's like, within a couple years, we have, you know, a Regal, like a Multiplex yeah. or whatever. Um, That's so, why yeah. I saw most of my movies. Was it, um, was it Elkin for a long time? Mm-hmm. Because um, for yeah. a long time we didn't have anywhere aside from Christiana that we could go to see right. movies close. Yep. When I was a kid in Baltimore, there was obviously you know like tons of movie theaters you could go to, but a lot of them either closed or the malls they were in uh, shut down or changed, or um, it just was too far for you know to go right. and see if there is a. Well, my parents, like when my brother was young, they weren't really into going to the movies as much. Yeah. 
Um, so yeah, being able to go by myself and with my friends and eventually, you know, in the mid nineties, like drive there and see movies whenever I wanted. That was a pretty big, um, pretty big boon. Sure. Yeah, and I saw a number of these movies in the theater that came out this year. Not these that are on your list, but it, it, I'm just looking at the list of movies from 1990. I've seen a lot of these in the theater. Um, but um, but this is also a time period. I'm assuming the same for you. Like you know, at that around that age, it's like just running videos all the time because you have nothing to do really, and then you know, seeing things on television all the time. And it's like I've seen like so many movies. Looking at this list. Uh, like the list of the movies from 1990, I've seen so many of these things, um, good and bad. Like, <clears throat> funny thing about the list that we're going to do specifically is I didn't see a lot of these movies until um, much later than you know 90 mm. on video. Um, some of them not even uh, until they came out on DVD. Um, yeah. Actually, maybe only two of these movies that I see in close proximity to their release. Uh, on VHS. You ever seen a movie called Mr. Destiny with John Belushi? Um, Jim, I haven't seen John, all John, of these. Jim Belushi. Jim Belushi, yeah. Um, I watched enough of Mr. Destiny to realize I don't want to watch it. <laughs> right, right. I liked Mr. Destiny when I was a kid, but that was um, a long time ago. Did you also like Destiny Turns on the Radio? I did not. Uh, yes all right um any other movies that you wanted to reference from 1990 i think we hit them okay you want to talk about die hard too is that what you're trying to get it i'm going to talk about some die hard movie you're actually the one that likes die hard too I just don't have the hatred of Die Hard 2 that I think some other people have. Well, I don't think I hate Die Hard 2, but it's certainly, I think, it's better, it's better than I, I think it's better than I remembered it being, but, oh, this was the year of Back to the Future 3, too, huh. Yeah, somehow that's next to list. <laughs> Shocker. Um, all right, so let's go ahead and jump in. So number five on your list is... The Reflecting Skin is directed by Philip Ridley, stars Viggo Mortensen, Lindsay Duncan, and Jeremy Cooper. Has an 88% from critics and 78% from audiences on Rotten Tomatoes. You want to tell us a little bit about this movie um, and why you have it on the list? Um, so it's basically a... I don't think fairy tale is necessarily the right word to use, but it's kind of a like a modern fable told from a child's perspective. Um, dealing with some pretty dark things, but under the auspices of being a a horror movie or a vampire movie, maybe. I mean, I think that's kind of like what the kid sort of thinks is happening is that there's vampires like preying on the people um, that live in this town. But really, it's a coming-of-age movie that's sort of like cast against... Um, I don't know, the backdrop of the post-war uh, 1950s, I suppose, like early 50s. Um, movie centers around this young boy who um, his father runs a like back backwater gas station um, in the Midwest in Iowa. Um, his brother is away, um, has been serving in the war in the Pacific. Um, his mother's depressed 
um, vaguely implied that she might have some kind of incestuous feelings for uh, her son that's away. Um, the father is also, as implied, is uh, homosexual um, and is a repressed homosexual at that and may have also had some illicit um, sexual relations with uh, teenage boys in the area. Um, but the kid doesn't understand any of this, and so he um, mythologizes it in certain ways. Um, and also the widow that lives next door, um, who he mythologizes in his head as a vampire, um, because she dresses in black and doesn't come out in the sun. And, um, and there's also a subplot where there's a group of serial killers that's basically like murdering uh, mostly young kids in the area. Um, which he also attributes the death of these kids to um, vampirism. And the brother comes back, that's Viggo Mortensen's character, and he has um, PTSD um, and begins a relationship with the um, supposed vampire woman, um, which the younger brother takes as the vampire woman kind of like working her like dark charms on him. Um, and ultimately it leads to tragedy because the serial killers murder the vampire woman and it kind of destroys the brother who is just starting to become normalized through having this relationship. Um, and it kind of ends like the, the growth of the young kid, um, into sort of realizing that these fake ideas that he had as a child aren't real anymore. A lot of really, um, I think really like interesting imagery in it. Uh, particularly he finds, uh, the desiccated corpse of a, an infant in a barn and thinks that it's an angel. Um, because he misinterpreted something his mother said is <clears throat> angels can basically like fall from heaven every time, um, you make your mother cry. Um, I don't know. A lot of weird stuff like that. In it. Yeah. But it's a beautiful movie, uh, set against, you know, usually like the midday noon sun, um, in cornfields and open pastures and, um, reminds me a lot of Days of Heaven, uh, sure. just in the way that it looks. Yep. Um, but very, very stylized in the way it's directed. Um, uh, maybe a little too stylized at some point, but, uh, like I said, the majority of it takes place right in the middle of like the noonday sun because that's really all that kid knows is like the there's no gradient to the kid's life. It's either like nighttime or it's like noon. Um, yeah, I don't know. I really don't know what else to say about it. Like, it's a pretty pretty interesting look at a bunch of really complicated issues and done in a way that's Maybe you could argue oversimplified and simplified through the eyes of a child. Yeah. I, I, I did a good job of selling it. I really like this movie a lot. And it was a movie that I saw when I was pretty young and didn't really know what to make of it. Um, I've only seen this movie a couple times since before watching it recently for the podcast. Um, it has a, a Lynchian feel to it in a lot of ways, but is more um, more obvious than Lynch, maybe. 
in terms of like the symbolism it's trying to portray. Um, but no less effective, I don't think. I mean, I think there's a lot of scenes in this movie that are super, super effective in the way that they're done and um, the discomfort that they cause in you as the viewer, um, yeah. especially because you understand like sort of what's going on and you can tell that the kid doesn't and that makes it, um, you know, always uncomfortable to watch like a little kid. Like yeah. struggling with like adult themes and adult ideas and <clears throat> oh. Yeah, I mean, I hadn't, I'd never heard of this movie, um, except for maybe you probably mentioned it to me before or had it like on like private lists. You've sent me of things to watch or something along those lines. But like, I had never really read into this movie. I had no idea what I was getting into. I didn't look into it. I just sat down, and started watching it, and um, I, I, I like this movie. I know that like I, I had a reaction to the ending, um, and was texting you about it. But I, I thought this was a really engaging movie. I thought like you know, uh, um, the acting was extremely well done. Um, Lindsay Duncan, who I've seen in a number of things through the years. I mean, most notably, I think in my mind is um, she's in the Water of Mars episode from um, in uh, Doctor Who. Um, but uh. I thought that she was particularly good in this. Um, it was interesting seeing a young Viggo Mortensen um, there. And I thought the child actor was really good. Consider, you know, usually children, you know, are hit or miss. And I thought he handled this really well for the subject matter. Um, yeah, I think I, part of that is the fact that they don't really write him like a child. Yeah. Like he has childlike notions, but not in childlike situations i guess i don't know yeah i i think the lynch thing is 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 on point we we've some something else we've talked about on here before kind of fits into this mold too is i see it as um this kind of uh extension of the baby boom um kind of like a midwest lynch slash sam shepherd like theme of like you know the disintegration of traditional family values like the 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 terribleness lurking underneath you know the um the pristine surface of uh you know childhood and um all those kind of things but i do think it's done in a more where it's like lynch's um what like avant-garde about it and shepherd is an absurdist um with his plays like Barry Child and True West and all those kind of things um I this this is much more accessible I think to uh, an average viewer and I'm like really shocked that I've never heard of this movie before like in terms of like seeing it publicized anywhere like you know anybody like you know really talking about it on the internet like that much or anything like that um but yeah I thought this was a worthwhile movie I think it's worth watching and um Especially because it's really bold in its view of like homosexuality and um, religion and how mm-hmm. religious fervor like can have a have an impact on the mind of like w- without context right. can have a negative impact on the way that someone views the world and mm-hmm. I don't know. There's a lot of things about it that are really surprisingly modern yes for being a movie that's at this point you know 30 years old 
Um, and you're right. Like it's it's weird. I guess that it isn't talked about more. And I think maybe that's because it's not enough of a horror movie to really fall right. Like in that classic, um, you know, the classic horror discussion. And then it doesn't really easily fall in any other category. So maybe that's that's part of the issue is that people just don't have to talk about it. But um, I don't know. I think that uh, I think it's a really good mystery in a lot of ways, and especially because it doesn't necessarily give you the answer to any of the mysteries. Um, it kind of leaves you just as in the dark as it does uh, it. Did. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of the imagery in it is pretty fantastic. Especially the stuff with um, him talking to the corpse of the baby um, mm-hmm. in his bedroom at night, like trying to figure out, you know, like get advice from it. And right. Because he has no functional adult role models in his life. Like mm-hmm. everyone around him is, you know, his father commits like one of the most harrowing acts of suicide and like burning himself um, at his gas pumps. And the mother is completely disassociated and his brother is um like I said, you know, suffers from PTSD, I, I think is what the implication yeah, is. Absolutely. Yep. Um and you know the the older woman next door um is alien anyway in the most literal sense because she's British right. and doesn't know how to really engage with this this kid. Um, and talking about the real idea of like why she's depressed because of the death of her husband. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. There's it just you you said it best. It's it's interesting that like, you don't really hear about this movie. I, um, I I wonder if another reason too is um, reading the couple negative reviews I saw of this. Almost everything's positive. I mean, it has an eighty eight percent. Um, has a 78% from audiences. So like between the audience and the critic reviews that I was reading, one word kept popping up in these reviews. Um, like, and I, I counted it at least four times and it might've been five, um, is the word vile to describe the movie as a whole. Hmm. So I wonder if people have a really bad reaction, some people to this movie. And because I, I do think it's uncomfortable, like, um, to some degree. Like even yeah. even for people that like it, I think it's a little uncomfortable. I mean, certainly I had a couple like memories pop into my head about like times I learned things, like you know, like what sure. something really was, you know, um, as a child, like thinking about like from this kid's perspective. Um, so I wonder if it's something where it makes people uncomfortable and they just don't like talking about it too. I mean, I think that's entirely possible. I um, the only reason I watched it is because it was. It was in the horror section in Movie King. I can't remember what it was next to, but it was next to something, maybe some of the Friday the 13th movies, um, where I would always see it. And, you know, the cover of the box is the kids sitting in a chair and then um, surrounded by, like, the skulls of animals and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have it pulled up right now. <laughs> and I always was intrigued by it, so then I, um, you know, wanted to see it. Uh, so I watched it, like, probably in 91 or 92 maybe um and then again like as an adult just i can't remember where i saw it. maybe i got it from netflix or something when netflix was physical dvd copies uh just because i remembered um liking it and then this time so i don't know i mean hopefully people listening to the podcast will 
take an hour and a half, two hours out of their life and rent it and watch it. It's on a Criterion now for free. Um, as a double feature with something else weird there with I can't remember what. Yeah, it just um, came up. It just came up on there, you said, right? Yeah, yesterday. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was funny because um anytime I have to pay for something and then it comes up, I always think there's some conspiracy at work. But <laughs> right. right. So I just I mean to to your point, talking about the look of this movie real quick, um, Dick Pope is the guy that did the cinematography for it, mm-hmm. um, and he, um, I mean, it, it's no wonder it looks so good because he's, um, uh, he's got a lot of good stuff to like his uh, name. So he, um, he did cinematography on Naked, Naked, the Mike Lee movie. Oh, okay. Um, Secrets and Lies. He did a lot of stuff with Mike Lee. Um, he did an awfully big adventure. Um, he did Topsy Turvy with him. Um, he um, did uh, The Illusionist um, with Neil Berger. Um, so he has a lot of. Um, he, he's he ended up being pretty accomplished. Um, hasn't done a lot of stuff good recently overall, but um, he um, but yeah. So he um, worked with Linkletter a couple times, like later in his career. Um, so. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, I mean it's it's a beautiful movie, Abs- um, absolutely gorgeous. Um, the, the only thing that um, I I told you that I and I still am not a fan of it is the very last shot, and I understand its import and its meaning. I think it's just that the way it's shot is it reminded me. I told you of that ecstasy video, uh, dear God. Yeah. Um, and do you know what I'm talking about? Like the the shot I'm referencing, like in, in, in ecstasy, where it pulls back, like up in the air, like away from the kid um it's very much like that to me for some reason but um besides that very minor quibble um it's it's a it's a it's a really good movie oh. i really like that video so what's that i really like that video oh so. yeah no I, I yeah i like that video uh it's it's but you admit like now it's a little um it's it, it's a little I, something it's a little something <laughs> i mean it's it's obvious. It's like I said, like this movie has a lot of obvious imagery in it, but I don't think that makes it bad. It just, you know. Yeah. yeah. Not everything's got to be like. Oh, I wasn't talking about the movie. I was talking about the ecstasy video. Like, oh, no, just, I know. I, know. Just, that's all. I get it. <laughs> the song's um, pretty obvious, too. Yes, it is. Yeah. I liked it as a teenager, but there's, there's still something there. Um, Not regret, but. <laughs> all right so um let's and go. it's x it's xtc not ecstasy oh yeah i it's is it is it, is it mdiv or imdb um no, but it seriously is xtc I, I know it is yes I, is it new berries or new berry leave notes you're talking about let's move on to number four number four on the list um is Emo Zhang's Judo. Um, it stars Gong Li, Boshin Li, and Wei Li. And it has a 100% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and an 89% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about this movie and why you like it so much? Uh, so this is a tragedy that takes place during feudal China. I don't know. Long time ago. Um, it's about a 
uh, Silk Dyer, um, who lives with a young man who he calls his nephew, um, that he completely mistreats. Um, it's revealed that he's basically murdered two of his previous wives because they wouldn't bear him a child. And he's recently purchased a third wife. Um, the wife and, uh, Tian, Tian Jing, um, Tian Ying, the nephew fall in love with each other. Um, basically because the nephew is sympathetic to her plight and is also abused by the uncle. Um, the uncle ends up having a stroke and becoming paralyzed from the waist down. Um, Young Jing, uh, Judo is the name of the woman, the bride, um, impregnates her. Uh, she bears a son. Um, and the uncle still is trying to exert like some measure of control over them. Um, but basically they cuckold him, um, and continue to have their affair, uh, to the point where they eventually put him in a bucket and suspend him, um, up in the air. Uh, but the child grows to think of the uncle as the father um, and resent his mother and his real father, biological father, um, basically for having this affair. Um, the father or the uncle dies, and then the kid pretty much murders him, burns him down um, in their in their house. And that's it. It's a feel-good story. Um this is this is the one where I texted you like immediately is like you got some real depressing stuff on <laughs> on these lists this year and yeah it's true. <laughs> um, this is one of the last movies that was filmed in full technical. Um, and it's unfortunate that the transfer that's on Amazon is not <clears throat> the best. It's a very grainy. Um, it's just not a good transfer because this movie is gorgeous and it's, um, like if you see it, I guess in a good, a good transfer. Um, just the colors of the silk dyeing, um, the way that the light is filmed, like coming in. So the setting of the movie is this, um, I don't know what you call it, like traditional feudal Chinese style house. So there's a very large, um, very large opening in the ceiling where uh, the silks are, are hanging down um, and the way that they film um, upwards through it and the light comes down through the different colors of silk it's uh, it's it's pretty pretty amazing, pretty beautiful um, the outdoor stuff is filmed really well, like it's uh, natural light is used to film the movie and you can tell like it's got a very um, very naturalistic feel to it um, it is, it's, it's a pretty depressing movie, like admittedly. Um, but I think it's well acted. Bong Lee in particular is, uh, really powerful, um, as the, the title, title character. Um, yeah, just, uh, very stunning movie to watch. Um, it's sad, but I think that, um, you know, worth watching at least once. Yeah. Um, it's a little better. So yeah, definitely watch because I, I I ended up I didn't rewatch it, but I, I kind of like watched like minutes here and there to, to, earlier today um, on Daily Motion, so I could actually see what you were talking about in terms of like the the, the print. Um, yeah, definitely don't watch it on Prime. Um, I would just try to watch it on Daily Motion. Um, if you Google 
judo and daily motion it's the first link um but yeah totally different film uh watching it in terms of like how it looks um with the colors and stuff like that yeah, it's the the prime version is almost impossible to watch i realize um just because you miss so much of the subtlety in the movie yeah um because there's a lot of things that you get from the interactions between characters um from their expressions from just the way that he films things you can't really see because the amazon transfer is so dark yeah especially at um, the nighttime scenes it's really it's really difficult it's almost impossible yeah yeah, yeah um the daily motion version is also free and uh, while illegal i suppose is uh I mean, it's 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 put up. It says here, film gorillas. Like, I mean, it's, it seems like it's actually kind of like legit, like in the way that it's being presented here. So I don't know if that's, I don't know, I don't know if there's some kind of copyright issue, but it's like a like a legit place that you can like follow and like all that kind of stuff, like on Daily Motion. So it looks kind of legit. Um, maybe there's no American copyright on them or something. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's uh, that could be something like that. Um, but yeah, I, 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 like I said, this film is depressing as hell. But I really, um, I, I, I really liked it, and it, there's something very Shakespearean about the whole thing. Like, um, like a very like it's 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 tragedy. I mean, and um, but it was definitely interesting to see that time and culture and how the tragedy unfolds, like in this very small setting. But like you know, um. But yeah, I mean, it was just nice to see it in a different backdrop than you normally would see it played out. Um, but yeah, I, I enjoyed the movie. Yeah. I'm a pretty big sucker for uh, movies that take place in times where people are doing things in an archaic, um, archaic way. You know, mm-hmm. the idea of them like <clears throat> the way that they, him operating the water wheel and using right. the donkey to like power it. And, mm-hmm. Just all that stuff is, um, um, I'm a sucker for that, like seeing things done with, they used to be done, like having that presented on film. Mm-hmm. And because it feels like so authentic because, you know, the village itself looks like it, you know, stepped out of the 1700s or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not familiar with, um, this director, um, at all. Emo Jong. Um directed a couple of those like House of Flying Daggers or whatever. Right? Yeah, that's it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then Hero, I guess, is the one that I probably know most, right? Like that's um Yeah, we watched that in the theater together. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah. he directed Race Red Lantern too, which is something that um well, maybe you haven't seen it, but it was another one that was uh Really, really popular indie movie um, in the early nineties. Hmm. But yeah, so he has a flying daggers hero. Yeah, those are probably the ones that he's best known. So for this is this is funny. He has a movie um, from two thousand nine called A Woman a Goose, uh, a Woman a Goose, A Woman a Gun in a Noodle Shop, um, and it is actually a remake of Blood Simple. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Interesting, but yeah, um, no, I thought I thought it was uh, really well directed. Um, received a lot of different nominations. I think it won the. Uh, I'm trying to remember, I can find it real quick. The Luis Bunuel um, Award at a uh, uh, con. Um, uh, so yeah, 
and then I think it was nominated for Best uh, Foreign Film of that year by the Academy. Yeah, good movie. I don't really have a lot to say about it, but I just thought it was a really good tragedy. Um, uh, let's see. Number three movie on our list. Hold on. Seeing if I got anything. I found anything here. Um, nah, that's not worth talking about. Okay. So number three on the list is Stephen Frears' The Grifters. It stars John Cusack, Angelica Houston, Annette Benning, Pat Hingle, and J.T. Walsh. It has a 91% from critics and a 70% from audiences. Can you tell us a little bit about the movie and why you have it on the list? Um... It's a pretty, uh, pretty gritty, like parboiled film noir style movie um, that focuses on something that I think is kind of, at least up to this point, maybe even like in general, not really focused on, which is um, con men and like how con men sort of operate in the world that they move in. Um, Kuzak is a short con, uh, small time grifter um, who ends up getting caught in a grift trying to basically steal $10 from a bar, um, gets hit in the stomach with a baseball bat and um, pretty badly wounded. Um, you find out that he's involved with this woman um, played by Annette Benning. Um, and his mother is a also um, con artist that works for a Baltimore-based mobster. Um, basically, fixing bets at horse tracks by overbetting certain horses to lower or raise odds uh, to increase the amount of money that's paid out to this mobster. Um, she comes into town. She finds that he's injured. She basically takes care of him and takes a disliking to his girlfriend. Um, the girlfriend, it turns out, is also a con artist but is more interested in long cons. Um, and you find out that she would run these um, investment banker uh, stock investor long cons with J.T. Walsh. And then he basically went nuts. And so now she's looking for another person to be her partner. Um, and she thinks that's Kuzak. Um, but he doesn't want anything to do with the long con. He only wants to be involved in short cons. Um, so she ditches him. Um, she tries to steal from um, Angelica Houston. Um, and ends up getting murdered for trouble. And then tragically, um, Angelica Houston trying to steal from John Cusack, um, so she can escape the mobster who she's, um, been grifting or been skimming from, um, throughout their career. Um, she ends up killing Cusack accidentally and then fleeing into the night. Uh, so another pretty, um, pretty dour movie just in terms of like it's, uh, the overall themes and the outcome of it, but brilliant performances. Um, Cusack's fantastic in it. Uh, Annette Benning, who I'm not a huge fan of in general, um, is really good in it. Agreed. Yep. Angelica Houston is really good in it. Um, it's the weird, like, perfect storm of late 80s, early 90s celebrities that were super popular and then just kind of faded away a little bit, um, including Stephen Frears, um, who was... Maybe like up to and including this movie, one of the more exciting directors in Hollywood. I mean, he's directed a lot of stuff that's um really pretty great. And before this, you know, he had dangerous liaisons and um 
did some other stuff after this. It's, it's so good, like High Fidelity. I don't know how you feel about that, but then also some really bad shit. Yeah, I really like um, Sammy Rosie. Got Sammy Rosie get laid too. That was before this. <clears throat> yeah, yep, that's a good movie. Um, which is really well filmed in that kind of. That there's any comparison, really, but kind of like Chinatown esque, like sun drenched noir of the of Los Angeles. Um, takes place in La Jolla and uh, L.A. and the surrounding areas. Um, so a lot of palm trees and um, sunny, happy places against you know this story of betrayal and duplicity and I don't know. Really get the impression that as crazy as you might be, um, uh, Annette Benning does kind of love um, John Cusack a little bit. Yeah. And really feels betrayed and hurt when he sort of rejects her, um, rejects her entreaties to go into business together. Um, claims that he's going to go straight when he's ends up getting killed, but I, you know, I think that's kind of a like a dubious claim. Like I'm going to get sober type thing. Right. Sure. Um. Yeah, really well written. Uh, Donald Westlake. I think did the script for it, right? Yeah, he did. Um, it was off the because uh, it's Jim Thompson novel. Um, this is based off of, and um, uh, Scorsese was looking for um a writer, and it was actually um I, I think this is on Wiki. I read it, but it was um Volker Schlondorf um that we talked about a year ago, and the Tin Drum, the director of that, um, is actually the person who recommended Westlake, um, to uh, adapt this, um. So yeah, he wrote it. Um, there's actually a little because um, he writes under Richard Stark as well. Um, Donald Westlake does um, with his Parker uh, series of Parker uh, uh, crime novels. Um, there is like actually a little thing where it says like because um, they wanted him to write under the Richard Stark name, um, but uh, he kind of didn't want to do it um, whatsoever. Um, so he wanted to use his real name and. Um, but there is a sign that says Stark Co and Fellows um, at one point in the film, and Stark and Co are two of his synonyms um, that Westlake writes under. So, um, <clears throat> but yeah, he wrote it. Um, great, no great, like hardboiled novelist. Um, if you've never read um, him before, like his uh, crime novels, especially his Parker books, um, uh, definitely like pick up one at some point in your life, you know, and just check it out. But yeah, he wrote it. Um, and um, yeah, the only thing I really have to say is I think the writing's really solid for this. Um, I think it's a good adaptation. Um, I have read the, the original book um, and I think it's a good adaptation. Uh, I, I particularly want to point out Annette Benning because I definitely agree with you there um, is that I do not like Annette Benning as an actress usually. Like I, I do not, there's not a lot of stuff I've watched her in that I'm like blown away by, but I think she's, does this role extremely well um and yeah. uh, uh she plays it with just the right amount of um kind of like airheadedness like mixed with like um because i do think she's actually an airhead to some degree like that there, there's some truth to that even though she plays it up but she's smart enough at least to play it up when she needs to um, she's not like a brilliant mind or anything. Um, you know, she's using a lot of coyness and sex appeal as part of her 
calm, you know? Um, and uh, she, she's just enough, she's just smarter than the marks are, um, you know, just by a little bit. Um, she's, but she's addicted to the money and the thrill of scamming people, uh-huh. like stealing money, and that's where she sees the appeal in um, in Akuzak. But you know, she's always willing to use her sex appeal to do whatever she can to get ahead in life. Yeah. I think Houston's um, the real star of this, though. Like, I mean, like, the absolute, like, she's, like, the, the gem of this whole movie. Like, everything yeah, I revolves around her to me, like, in a lot of ways. It's 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 the best performance. Yeah. Um, I think it's interesting that this is 1990, because in a lot of ways, I kind of feel like this sets the, um, sets the stage for what would come after this in the 90s and all credit to Tarantino and just, you know, what he did by building, like, especially Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, which I think really like broke open the indie movie scene in the 1990s, but I think the movies like this, just in terms of their darker tone and, you know, smart writing, I think are, um, I think this is a really important movie yes. that maybe gets overlooked sometimes. Um, yeah, I agree. And I think that you also have to take into account, it's like you don't see crime movies like this very often get pushed up into critical acclaim like this did. Um, and I think that was very important, as you were saying, for what, what's to come, I think, in the next decade. Um, right. Because not only, you know, I, I don't know what this movie did in the box office, I can't imagine. Um, had a limited run, apparently it was successful, it says. But um <clears throat> in this limited run but the fact that this won so many different awards at so many different um you know um you know film critic awards and stuff like that and was at least nominated for director angelic Houston was nominated i think benning was nominated and westlake was nominated um but to see that kind of like a movie like this as part of like what's nominated for um those major awards like that you don't see that with crime movies that often um it's usually a performance maybe or cinematography or something like that so um i think that really helped too that the academy um you know ended up uh giving it consideration that year it really probably my guess has made it financially maybe more financially viable to start putting out crime stuff like on an indie level or something like that um but yeah i think i think tonally and um you know just the fact of the, the and helping the genre along yeah i think you're right i think it's really important yeah and it's just a good movie yeah yeah and that's what's amazing is like it's it's just a really good movie <laughs> it's like there's nothing like magical about this movie like you know i mean as good as it is it's not chinatown you know i mean right alongside it's that solid classically trained 90s you know like 80s and 90s directors that yeah right you don't really think about all that much but who all were capable of doing you know it's Frears, it's barry levinson it's Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. i don't know rob reiner you know these guys that could just make movies and knew how to tell a story and film a narrative and not get, you know, still have some artistic, like a lot of artistic merit, but not get too bogged down in their, you know, like own masturbatory, like love of whatever their own art. So I don't I think that might have been lost at some point from people that were more like 
trained gorilla style, like outside of the um, you know, like film school and the studio system. Yeah. So I do have a couple pieces of um, uh, criticism I do want to bring up to you and get your thoughts on. Um, one is Variety really um, cuts into Kuzak in this movie um, and thinks it's the worst performance probably in the entire movie and goes so far as to say he's an unbelievable wise guy, a colorless cipher too akin to the saps he loves to fleece. Um how would you, if you had to go into a little bit more detail about his performance, like um, what would be your positives and negatives out of that performance? I mean, I think that I think that's accurate, but I think that's the point. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what Angelica Houston's character basically says: is that you're nothing more than a mark. Right. You don't have it in you to do this because you're always going to be the same person as the marks you're trying to please. So I think that he plays that role actor. His, his heart's on his sleeve a little too much. He's always a little too wet-eyed and, you know, like baby-faced. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm, there's mm-hmm. there's a level of believability to that performance in um, Houston as the the world-weary, like, super con artist that has seen everything, like, she knows. Right. And she's right. And, I don't know. Yeah. Who, who said that? Uh, Variety. They don't I mean, name. Yeah, they don't name their writers. It's just a... That's kind of missing the point, because it is the point. I, agree. I mean, it's like, it's not missing the point, but it's like... Not seeing the forest for the trees or whatever. I sure. guess. I don't know. Like, yeah, I mean, the, it's it's not a mystery. It's like he's not a good con man. It's like he gets he 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 pulls off. You see one con with the money that works, and then the next time he tries it, he gets fucking hit in the stomach with a. But baseball. that's the funny thing. And actually, I meant to bring that up. So I'm glad you said that. I I'd forgotten about it. It's in a motherfucking Benigans. Right. Like right. the dude is like right. pulling off a scam in. This disposable chain mm-hmm. restaurant. He's not like out there. Yeah. You know, this isn't the sting or something. This guy's in a Benigan's like running a scam. So, and that's what he wants to be, is he wants to be. And he's running like, a scam think, that anybody could run. Right. And I think in his heart, I think he knows that he's not cut out for it, but he has nothing else. Like he wants to be. Right. He wants so badly to be the guy that is cool and can run these scams and he's not and so he's kind of stuck yeah but you know like he's enough to well i mean and, that, and, and doesn't that fit in perfectly from a psychological standpoint to almost the oedipus complex that he has right i mean <clears throat> like that's the other funny thing too is when um when he's called to identify the body um and he sees the like the nude body he says that it's his mother before mm-hmm. he even bothers to check to see if the scar is him. So right, right, yep. He's yeah. Like I, I think that's a valid criticism of the character, right? But I think that it's not a valid criticism of the performance because that's what the character is supposed to be. Yeah, yeah. That's just kind of silly. Agreed. Um, here's something that I think is a little bit more nuanced, and it comes from our um. Uh, 
our new friend Jonathan Rosenbaum from the Chicago Reader. Um, he praises a lot of things in the film, like the cinematography and the acting and all that kind of stuff. He says that though, while the filmmakers managed to keep things interesting, and he defines that sexy, kinky, ambiguous, much of the time, the self-conscious piety that Frears lavishes on this material places it in an uncertain netherworld that prevents it from ever becoming fully convincing. Um, the time, apparently the present, is apparently the present, but the style nudges us so insistently back to the 40s and 50s that the characters seem cut adrift without a stable world to support them. And I do think he's making an interesting point here in the idea that it does not, I, I mean, basically, I think you can probably summarize that in that it's not a lived-in world um, to a large degree. Um, right. Don't you think that's part of the point, too? Yeah, I mean, these are people that exist outside the what do you want to call it? Like the um, the boundaries of society. If they're not part of right the societal structure, you know they're they're on the grid. Like they don't yeah. they they don't live real lives. They don't mm-hmm. have real jobs. I mean, they're in in their own way. They're living in this fantasy that they can still survive in right. the world, the modern world, by doing these, you know, right. Low right. rent, like yeah, palm, palm, and stuff. yeah palm, the palm grift, like you know, like in a pedicant, right? Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. Um, I. I also think I, I'm. Freer's call. I think said of this that um. Ah uh, shit! What did he? Well, I'm trying to think of like what he said. He compared it to something. Um. Oh, just the general, not the movie, but the general idea of Pulp Fiction. He um. Said so it's like Pulp Fiction meets Greek tragedy. And I think by keeping it so that it is very insular um, among all these different characters and that it, like the real world doesn't exist, I think it does heighten that effect in some ways, too, of focusing on the tragic elements of it. Um, right. Almost making it like, a, yes, it's in a world and the world exists and it's all around, but you never really get to see the world that much. It's focused just on these characters, almost like a stage play is. Um, and I, I think that's purposeful. I think Frears did that on purpose, but, um, I don't think Rosenbaum's wrong necessarily. I just don't think that, um, he's right in like criticizing it for that. I think it actually helps the movie. Yeah, I agree. All right. Um, but yeah, Grifter's a great movie. If you haven't seen it, you should check it out. Um, all right, number two on your list is Days of Being Wild. It is directed by Wong Kar Wai. It stars Leslie Chung, Maggie Chung, Andy Lau, and Tony Leung. It has a 90% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and an 88% from audiences. Do you want to tell us a little bit about this movie, its context, and what you like about it so much? Um, so this movie forms... What you could call is a loose trilogy of uh, Wong Kar Wai's, um, I don't know, like Forbidden Romance or Pining Romance trilogy uh, with this movie, um, In the Mood for Love, which we discussed on the podcast before in 2046. Um, it's a loosely connected series of vignettes that revolve around predominantly. Um, the uh Leslie Chung character, uh York, who's um 
playboy, um, a charmer, um, has these two women that are in love with them. One is a more traditional kind of homespun, but beautiful woman, um, Lee, Lee Jen, whose works at the box office at the soccer arena, um, and who wants like a traditional, you know, relationship with, uh, York. The other one is Mimi, who's more, um, wild and kind of crazy, really similar to the character in, um, shit. Which movie is that? But the other one we talked about on the podcast. I, I get them all moved up. Their names. Um, um, damn it. I'll think of it. No. But she's more vivacious and outgoing and still wants the same thing, but kind of hides those desires behind this mask of like frivolity. Um, but he treats them both really poorly. Uh, he's a really broken man anyway, because he um, was raised by this woman who's a prostitute um, and has never known who his real parents are. Um, and his, you know, quote unquote mother, like won't, even, won't tell him anything about it. Um, and then there's some other ancillary characters that are involved. Um, there's York's best friend that's secretly in love with the Mimi character. Um, there's a patrolman, um, named Tide who's, uh, in love with the Li Zhen character. Um, and in, you know, typical Wong Kar Wai fashion, there's a lot of longing. There's a lot of, um, walks in the rain and conversations about things that are talking around like the actual issue and no real satisfaction for anybody in the long run. Um, York eventually goes to the Philippines because he finds out that his mother is a a wealthy woman that lives there, um, but can't really bring himself to go and see her. Um, Ends up getting, um, becoming acquainted with Tide again, who has left the police force and is now a sailor, so they become friends in the Philippines. Um, but York ends up getting killed um, in a fight uh, with some ruffians or thugs or whatever. Um, and basically gives Tide permission, in like passive permission, to pursue uh, Li Zhen, um, who it's implied that he was the one that she was the one he was actually in love with. Um, but you never get to see any of that happen either because right. Wong Kar Wai is never going to pay off anything you want to see by actually having it happen. Um, and then in a weird, uh, seemingly unrelated coda, um, what's his name? Tony, Tony Leon. Yep. Um, in the mood for love, uh, presumably, um, as, you know, getting dressed as this gambler, like getting ready to go out. Um, it's rougher than in the mood for love in terms of the way that it's filmed. Um, still a beautiful movie, and you can see a lot of uh, uh, Wong Kar Wai's like kind of gaining his confidence as a director and sort of learning how to film things. And if you're familiar with his later movie, Fallen Angels is the one where yes, yeah, Fallen Angels uh, episode um, uh, sixty-seven. Uh, it was top five foreign films in nineteen ninety-five. And her name is Lulu in that movie, right? In that movie? Or Mimi? Uh, that character? It's basically the same character. Um, in a lot of ways. Um, a little more scatterbrained in Fallen Angels, but 
the same sort of personality and the air of um like this nonchalant air that nothing matters but really has like yeah the deepest wounds of anyone in terms of like being like feeling love and loss and rejection um the performances in this movie performances in this movie are really great mm-hmm. um again i think that um Wong Kar Wai is the master in a lot of ways of giving you these slice of life romances that feel both like classical in a cinematic sense but also realistic in a lot of ways mm-hmm. um, or at least feel believable and will just not give you the satisfaction of like a clean ending ever um, but I think that makes his movies that much more compelling because he doesn't let you off that easy like he's always going to make you wonder what happened to these people or think about these people in terms of where did they go after this like even in like the immediate moment you know when you see Li Zhen at the end of the movie she's still just sitting there alone you know sort of missing her chance of romance with York and missing her chance of romance with Hyde right. and kind of in a, in a way probably pining for both of them but it doesn't overemphasize that stuff and it doesn't sure. force you to drag it out or anything it's just kind of like this is where you leave this character and that's okay yeah i mean and 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 how true to life is that and i think that's one of the reasons i like his movies so much is because you said they're slices of life but it's like how true to life is that is that when the fuck do you ever get closure right it's true and they're they're filmed in a way where you're looking at these things like you're watching i don't know, like lauren bacall and humphrey bogart or something the way yeah. that he films like these interactions you know because he's a very classical director in some ways and then he's also a very avant-garde director in others in the way that he films like low angles and dutch angles and just like the way he especially the way he films like hong kong during its different like seasons like in the in the rain and in the heat you know that he's not afraid to show like the sweat on the skin of someone just because it's so hot and there's no way to like keep cool. Um, so it feels like very real and very classic at the same time. Like I, I really love that about him. Yeah. As a director. Um, and like you I said, really, oh, sorry, go, go ahead. I was just going to say, this is the first time Christopher Doyle works with him um, as the cinematographer. Um, so that's, I think that like speaks to like, the, the roughness of it it's it's the very first time they they work together and then doyle works with them on fallen angels and they get better and then you eventually get you know in the mood for love and you know um i think chunking express he also worked with them on yeah. um so you can see it up to the point because it's like i still think that in the mood for love is like their masterpiece in terms of like the like everything about the way that movie looks um and it's, it's like gorgeous movie and and you and i think it's like it builds through those movies and like they experiment with all these different styles and I, they eventually like you know and it fits perfectly with that movie but i'm sorry go ahead what were you going to say um i was just going to say that you know he goes on to craft like a lot more like gorgeous films yeah um but from a you know from a human perspective, like I think he really finds the voice in this movie. I was really excited to put this on the list because I was pretty sure you had never seen it, um, and I didn't want to tell you anything about it, so I didn't 
um, whatever, like reveal that it was the first in this trilogy, or right. you know that it was kind of interconnected with these other movies. I'm hoping that you would like mark out when you realize like what you were watching. Um, I had never seen this movie until like I had seen, I think in the mood for love and 2046 before I saw this, because I didn't see this movie until, um, 2004 ish. They released a Kino video released a one car wide box set. Um, so it's this Chung King, uh, fallen angels, happy together. And fifth movie that I can't remember which one. I don't remember which one it is. Um but that was my first like big exposure to Wong Kar Wai and I um I really fell in love with him. Like I think he's a great director. Um again I think that it's I think there's very few people that have I don't even know who I would compare him to like lazy not not lazy but like uh like a laid back Fellini type feel, but that's not even right. Like it's just very human and very interested in the interactions between humans more so than he is in the overall telling of a story, which I, I don't hey, know, I like that. Let's see if this follows for you. Take away the magical realism of Murakami and focus on like the small interactions between people that are in Murakami's books. And that's what I feel like I'm watching a lot of times with his movies. Yeah, I get that. Take, take away all the, the the nonsense and the craziness a lot of times, you know, like out of Murakami and like you're left with, you know, the meetings in the cafes, you know, um, and, and, and that's where what you're left with. Um, yeah, I didn't know this guy until you introduced him to me you know, whatever you had me watch in the mood for love all those years ago. Um, and yeah, I absolutely love this guy. I still haven't watched everything um, that's out there, but it's like, I'm okay with that. Cause I think you like him enough that you're going to keep putting them on lists um, over the years. And um, I'm fine with just seeing one every once in a while. I had never, like you said, I had never seen this. I thought it could have been that movie, but I wasn't positive, you know, cause I, I don't, you know i didn't know like which one of those was his you know was the kind of first one right but um i had asked you at the end why does tony young show up completely disconnected from the plot in the last two minutes i I texted you that yesterday like you know is it thematic is it like you know um so what happened with this movie is the box office was so bad for it when it got released that they had planned to do basically something like in the mood for love immediately as a sequel. Um, and so they saw that as almost like a teaser for the next movie. Mm. And then the box office was so bad. Nobody wanted to give them any money to do the sequel. Um, so they end up basically, he has to like almost like go do other stuff and build himself back up. And then finally like comes back around to it. Um, you know, whatever, almost 11 years later or whatever. Um, and then they film both of those movies because of that problem. They film In the Mood for Love and uh, 2046 pretty much at the same time. Um, with the idea being it was going to be 2046 is the movie. And then they ended up like, and it was so long and so big and they filmed so much because he works in a kind of improv kind of like way a lot of times. 
uh, which is that I won't get into boring people with, but if you want to go read about him, you can. Um, he's a fascinating director in the way that he films um, and like how he comes up with scenes and stuff like that. It's very unorthodox. Um, but eventually he ends up like making in the mood for love out of the stuff that was going to be flashback stuff from 2046 and then ends up making 2046 um it's like own thing kind of of the you know regret piece of you know like the the longing for what never was um so that's the answer to this question of why he shows up in this like weird two minute scene at the end um that's kind of close to what i thought yeah, when you sure. no, the, yeah, no, yes. you're, yeah. So I, I do think that there's thematic reasons possibly for that as well. Um, and I'll talk to you about this after we're done because I, again, I don't want to like uh, talk about the whole thing um, on here because I figure at some point we'll end up talking about 2046 someday. Um, so I'll talk to you about it off of here. Some other ideas I had about it, but this movie's really good. You can see the talent there um you know right away like you said i think the story like the the movie itself is uh, the stories in it they do a fantastic job of giving these slices of life you actually can feel for these characters um and i think that's what he excels at is the idea yeah. that yeah, it's a beautiful uh, film in that respect yeah um you know and it gives you if you want to watch in the movie for love it actually gives you interesting insight i think now into the mrs chan character um of maybe why some of those decisions get made in the mood for love as well and like where she's coming from since it's the same character um in that so um i do think it influences some of the decision making in the mood for love then at that point too even though it's a loose prequel or sequel you know their loose prequel sequel you know combo um there are some things that happen in this that i think do help determine things in the mood for love but yeah, great movie. I loved watching it. So. I'm glad. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> so the number one movie on your list is Europa Europa. It is a Polish movie directed by... <clears throat> Damn it. I almost had it. Um, Agnieszka Holland, and it stars Marco Hufschneider, Julie Delpy, and Andre Wilms. It has a 95% from critics and a 91% from audiences. You want to tell us about this movie and why it's number one on the list? Uh, so in the late 30s, um, a young boy, Sally, uh, lives with his family, his Jewish family. Um, they're starting to feel the oncoming pressure of the Nazi party, um, you know, the persecution of the Jewish people. Um, culminating in uh, during Kristallnacht, um, his father's uh, shop is destroyed, his sister is killed, um, and him and his brother are forced to flee Poland, um, or I guess flee Germany to Poland, um, with the idea that they'll be safe from the Nazi party in Poland. Um, during their flight, he gets separated from his brother and ends up uh, staying at um, a communist uh, orphanage, basically, um, where he learns to speak Russian and gets trained to be a good member of the Communist Party. Um, during the German roll through Poland, they have to flee again, um, even though he's, and he's created like a, 
pretty close bond with these communists, um, especially this one younger female communist who it's implied that they're in love with each other. Um, but again, you know, he gets separated from these people and uses his ability to speak German um, to pretend to be a, what do they call it? Like basically a German expat in Poland. Like he was a German national citizen that's um, like living outside of the country. Right. Um, and convinces these Nazis that he's not Jewish or that he's just like a regular German. No, I shouldn't say like that. He's a non-Jewish German citizen. Um, becomes sort of like their mascot um, by helping to capture um, Stalin's son. And mind you, all this is based on the autobiography of a man that truly lived through these events. Um, so he becomes this basically model Nazi in a lot of ways, um, at least in terms of like the affection for the officers and the other troops towards him, um, gets credit for her storming a bridge and causing the surrender of a communist battalion because he's trying to defect. Um, eventually gets sent to a Hitler youth school. Um, and the whole time he's super afraid of people discovering that he's circumcised because that'll be the thing that, right. um, points out effectively that he's, he's a Jew. Um, the only person that really discovers it is another, a young soldier who finds out because he tries to have a tryst with Stalin in the bathroom and um, they sort of keep each other's secrets, the one, you know, being a homosexual and the other being a Jew. Um, and they become like really good friends and he ends up dying. Um, ultimately, uh, Stalin ends up um, in the defense of, I guess it's Berlin, maybe, um, but of Germany, like during the... Um, the Rush the Russian encroachment into Germany um towards the end of the war um and is reunited with his brother at the end um with the the last true scene in the movie before the coda, you know, his brother saying, Don't ever tell anybody your story because no one would believe it. Um you made this point and I think this is a really good comparison to Jojo Rabbit. Mm-hmm. Um, I also saw a lot of the tin drum in this. Sure. The yep. idea of yeah. somebody somebody in a completely unique circumstance or Forrest Gump maybe even. Just that idea of like somebody who's thrust into these pivotal moments in history just because of proximity and luck in a lot of ways. Um, like there's so many times where he could have died or he could have been discovered or um, anything awful could have happened to him. And yet um, through Providence, he basically manages to to survive and to prosper and to be reunited with his brother. And um, there's some heartbreaking stuff, you know, the death of his, um, his friend that's gay. Um, really the, you know, the letters he receives from his family, like kind of depicting the horrors that they're facing in the ghettos, um, his own like internal turmoil over the idea of basically having to pretend to be a Nazi in order to stay alive. But um, while like so many others that are that are just like him really are suffering, 
um, and the idea that there's really no difference between um, the Jews and the quote-unquote Aryans anyway, because he gets examined by a prominent, you know, Nazi physiologist um, who proclaims him to be of, like, good Aryan stock. So, um, a lot of really great performances in it. Uh, funny that Delphi is um, so prominent in the cast list, considering she's in it for, what, like, 20 minutes total, maybe? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know she plays an important role. So, Delphi is... Um, part of the, I can't remember what they were called, like the young girls auxiliary to the Hillary youth, um, who's attracted to Sally because he's considered a war hero in a lot of ways. Um, but because he can't let her see his uncircumcised dick, or his circumcised dick, that can never like consummate a relationship with her. Right. And she right. Up, um, having a child with someone else, but a lot of this movie revolves around this man's penis. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Which I guess all things being equal, if he didn't have that, he could have passed like, forever as a as a Nazi. But it's, um, you brought this point up that I tend to like enjoy these World War II era movies, and I think that in the same way that we were just talking about how much, you know, we both enjoy uh, one car wise movies because they're really slice of life is I really like these movies that take place during World War II that aren't 100% about the war itself that aren't like necessarily war movies it's just the war is the backdrop to the human the effect of the war on the human condition as opposed to the war itself and there's movies like this and Jojo Rabbit and um, The Last Metro and um, The Marriage of Maria Braun. Like, there's plenty of things where, like, I, I really just love that look at people that were just regular people during, you know, these terrible traumatic times and how the war affected them. So, but I think it's a really great movie. I think it's got some pretty amazing performances in it. Um, I think it's really well directed. Um, I think it's very moving. Um, it has some really good moments of levity mixed in with some really sad and touching moments. Um, his friend dying probably being like the most uncomfortable thing, mm-hmm. the saddest part of the movie, maybe. Um, and just, you know, it asks some really tough questions like, what, what's the length that you go to to survive? You know, do you give up your whole identity? to fit in a masquerade with a group of people who are basically dedicated to exterminating your entire race of people. Um, if it means that you survive, you know, that circumstance. And I don't know that it, um, I don't know that it really gives him any sort of, what I'm looking for, like a pass in that respect. Yeah, it doesn't. But I also don't know that it necessarily condemns him. Like, I right. think it's very good Mm-hmm. Like honest, like wide-eyed portrayal of what that could be like. Yes. So, okay. and maybe that comes from the fact that you know it's directly based off of his own autobiography, um, and his portrayal of himself. But I, you know, I think that I think in a lot of ways, like we try to canonize or demonize somebody because of their circumstance, and I think it, especially in like today's day and age. 
and I'm not excusing anything from that anyone's doing at present, but I think that it's important to remember that sometimes people are just doing things to get by in the situation they're in. I don't know. Right. Yeah. I don't have a lot really to add to any of that. Like, so I, 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 I told you the other night, it's like, I thought this was the best movie, you know, it was just independently of not knowing what you were going to, you know, what your list order was going to be. Like, I thought this was the best movie. Um, and I think it was the best movie out of all of those kind of World War II movies that you, like, do like to put on these lists. Like, you know, like, there's a couple last year, like Tin Drum, and um, there's, right. another one, there's another one last year, too. Um, um it was on there and there was like gardens of the uh Finzi contini's like this year and like you know um but yeah i thought this was the best one i think i could probably relate to it more because of the coming of age aspect kind of like i talked like you know like i mentioned like a jojo rabbit um but I, I i agree with you completely in that like i really did i think like kind of highlight what it must have been like and what kind of terrible decisions you have to make especially for a child to make you know um you know he's still a child and to, to have to make in this circumstance and like what do you do and i you're right they don't i don't think they condemn him or you know judge him in any way um and i don't think they give necessarily like give him like he's at a pass so and i really appreciate that about the movie um um, I think the first half of this movie is much better than the second, um, overall, like I, I really enjoy the first half a little bit more than I, not a lot better, but it, I think I enjoy the first half of this, like the stuff in Russia, um, a bit more, um, than the second half, but, um, the second half is completely necessary, um, to the movie, obviously. Um, but yeah, I, th I thought, I thought it looked nice. Um, I, and, um, I thought it was really well acted and I, I really enjoyed watching it and I definitely, I agree with you. I thought it was the best one out of this year. So here's a funny admission. Mm -hmm. There's, you thought, uh, you thought it was a Lars von Trier movie that you were putting on the list? Sorry. No, no that's, that would be really funny. Hmm. Um, there's a Truffaut movie from 80 that almost made the 80 list, uh, called The Last Metro, which is, Similar in the idea of like the last yeah. uh -huh. um, movie theater in, in Paris. Um, it's really like what I've always thought that Tarantino was sort of ripping off in um, Inglorious Bastards and those scenes, like the scenes in the theater. Um, but I decided not to put it on the list because it's similar enough to this movie where I felt like we would basically be having the same conversation twice. Right. And I picked this one because I feel like this one is. I felt like it would be a little more accessible to talk about, and I felt like it was a little less known. Like, I feel like people mm -hmm. know Truffaut, like, quite a bit. So, at some point, we'll talk about that Truffaut movie, because I really love The Last Metro a lot, and um, I think it's a pretty fantastic movie, but all things being equal, I decided to go with this one, because I think I like it just a little bit more, but yeah, this is a great movie. I think it's definitely worth watching. It's um Criterion channel if you're a subscriber. Um, it's up right now. Um, definitely um, powerful and worth watching. It's really great performance. Um, the guy that plays Sally in this will go on to act in the abomination that's the island of Dr. Moreau, the Richard Stanley um, version. I saw that, yeah. Um, so if you ever watch Island of Lost Souls or whatever it's called, the documentary that came out about um 
the making of that movie, he featured pretty prominently in it. Hmm. Um, he's interviewed several times, and he's got some really, really good insight on the filmmaking process. And he just seems like a pretty interesting guy in general. Um, yeah, yeah, and um, it's really dopey that young too. Yeah, no, it is. So she's never really like aged, I guess. Right. Ways, nah, so. she's st- she's starting to a little bit, a little bit. Just yeah, little like at like sixty years old. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, Agnieszka Holland um ended up going on to have a pretty successful um uh television directing career um in the two thousands because she got hooked up with um HBO at one point um through the wire um she started directing um episode uh, episodes in season three and directed a handful of episodes um and then went on to do stuff i'm assuming it's david simon related because she ended up going to do stuff on treme um eventually but she also did stuff with the killing and house of cards and a whole bunch of other stuff um so um yeah she um she ended up having a pretty successful career um following all this um she also did something at one point in the 90s that i knew washington, washington square, square. Yep. yeah yeah yep that's a good version of washington square it is yep i agree um but yeah so um so yeah it was nice saying something from her because i i knew her i had known her name um i didn't know how to pronounce it until today but i knew her name just from like the wire um back in the day like i had seen it um but it was nice to see something uh like this that she a film that she directed in her yeah. uh, home country so all right you know what else is another good movie that we're gonna have to talk about someday but what's that it's really tough to watch and it's it's similar to this but without any of the levity is um come and see um it's available somewhere right now it might be a free for Frank movie, but it might be on Criterion as well. Um, but man, it is one of the most har- harrowing portrayals of war and its effect on um, ending childhood, basically. Like it's a, a rough movie, but it's great. Really fantastic film. But we'll we'll talk about it someday, I think. Okay. Um, if you ever get the chance to watch it, like over the holiday when you have time, um, you should check it out because I think you would. I think it would depress the shit out of you, but I think you would really dig it. Right. Uh, it's yeah. I don't think it's. I think it's free for Frank somewhere. Oh, I think it's on Criterion maybe. It, there's a Criterion version of it. Yeah, that was released on DVD. I yeah, it know. looks like it's on the Criterion channel. Yeah, that's probably where it is. Um. Real quick, the you mentioned the last Metro, and for some reason, my mind someone somewhere else. I'm not thinking the last detail, but is there a movie that also is the last something, but it's a post-apocalyptic movie that is yeah. maybe maybe directed by um, what's his name? Right, uh, Besson, Luke Besson. Yes, yeah, yeah. it's Le, it's Le, Le Combat. Yeah, the final combat, the last, right? The last battle, last battle, or something. Like, yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. That's it's got it's got John Renault in it. It's a good movie, right? It's almost yeah. made a it's almost made a couple of lists, but yeah, I've held back from it because I don't know exactly where it fits in, and I think right. that I felt like other things were more appropriate. I really yeah. like that movie, though. Yeah, I feel like it's 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 like Stalker, but it's not as good as Stalker. Yeah, that's like when I I liked it a lot because it always made me feel like. 
I could make a movie. <laughs> Does that make sense? Uh, like if if this right, is all it takes, right, like yeah. I could do this. But it's right. still a good movie. Like there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. It's definitely enjoyable and it's a pretty great performance by um by Renault in it. Um, but you you definitely feel like it's right, yeah. Not amateur, but not um, not completely professional yet either. Sure. Well, that was or maybe his, not that as was well his first. That was his first movie, right? I mean, Luc Besson. Uh, That's really old, right? Eighty-eight. Yeah. I think. No, eighty-three. Eighty-three, huh? Yeah, that was his first movie. Um. Yeah. So, looks like you've done something. Yeah, black and white. Like you, yeah. you can feel equal parts George Miller and you know Jean Luc Godard. Like when you watch it, right? Um, it also, in an odd way, reminds me of Tetsuo. Sometimes, mm-hmm. like I think that the director of Tetsuo kind of pulled from it, um, just in the way the buildings and architecture and technology are filmed and displayed. Um, it's 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 a really good movie. It's definitely worth watching if you have a chance. I think it's it's available to watch on um in full on a uh, YouTube. It looks like okay, cool. Yeah, that was a good list this weekend. Next yeah, week no, is a really good list as well. Next week is a really good list. Um, uh-huh. I, really yeah. excited to talk about all these movies. I mean, I think all uh, every I think every list has been pretty good so far. Um, like for this end of the year stuff that we're doing. Um, so yes, next year we will be finishing up um, um, the kind of official slate of episodes for the year with episode ninety five, the top five films of two thousand. Um, and then we will be figuring out a uh, kind of like special, like probably like shorter episode to kind of go ahead and um, give like a bonus episode like we did last year. Um, and then we will be jumping into a new year's worth of lists. And I guess um, I can just go ahead and kind of say that now to kind of start advertising. So in January, we will be doing the top five animated films in the 1980s. Uh, we will be doing uh, the top five Luis Buñuel movies. Uh, we will be doing a versus um, uh, episode uh, where we're going to talk about Annihilation and Starfish, um, those respective movies. And then we will be going back into horror next year, um, one episode a month where we will be covering all 10 years of the 1990s for horror as the last episode of the month. And uh, so we'll be starting with the year 1990 um, in terms of horror. Um, and then going consecutive through the months, 91, 92, um, so on and so forth. So, um, that's when we do a thematic quick gauge though, for the end of the year too, the holiday gauge. Oh, 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 is that free somewhere? I, cause it has to be. Yeah, it's free on, uh, something. Something that's free for Frank, probably something I I looked it up on Prime. Oh, it's part of HBO. It's on HBO. Oh, okay. Cool. That's right, because I looked it up tonight and it popped I have, up. I, I have not seen that. I saw that in the theater, and I have not seen it since, and I'm going to watch it again now. Um, just so like, excited to watch it. Oh, my God. it's. I think that's I think that's my Tuesday night movie this week. <laughs> Although that's not the quick cage for this week. It's going to be the Christmas quick cage. Right, right. <clears throat> All right, so thank you for listening, everybody. Check us out next week, top movies of uh, 2000. Uh, other than that, uh, th- uh, thank you for listening. Have a good night. Yep, have a good week.